Good afternoon and welcome back to the EJS show on the Liberty Block. As always, we are recording this live and we will have it up as a podcast shortly after its conclusion. We invite feedback through our email address at ejsshow at protonmail.com. Good afternoon, Ed, Ed, and Jody. Hey, everybody. Hey, Jody. Hey, Steve. Hey, Ed. I'm not slurring and stuttering like our president. There really are two Eds. Yeah, hi, Ed. It's uh, Ace High, I guess. What's that? A pair of Eds beats Ace High. I thought you were going to say two Eds are always better than one. Ooh. That too. All right. I see that everything from here on is going to be uh, better. <laughs> I don't think we can go worse. Um, I know kind of what my stories that are of interest to me, um, but let's see. Who wants to start with what are the most interesting stories or the most important stories of the week to them? Jody, you got one? Good at this. I'm not good at this part. This is not right. my skill set. All right, let's go to one of the Eds. I think the biggest story that's not really being reported much is that Evergrande, the Chinese uh, property development company, defaulted, well, its grace period to pay its debts to ended, so it effectively defaulted, but only on its foreign debt. It's paying its Chinese creditors, uh, which tells me that the Chinese government is trying to foist the the default onto foreign uh, foreign investors. Um, and you've mentioned this before, and I and you're right. I, don't, I mean, not that I follow every news outlet, but it's not really being talked about. I haven't seen it anywhere. Period. I saw something about it, but didn't pay attention much to it. So, Ed, how much are they defaulting on, and how much directly affects America? Um, I don't remember the exact breakdown of the of the amount of the default, but it's a substantial amount. Um, we're not sure whether it's going to require any kind of bailout on our side from the Biden administration or Western governments. Um, the Chinese Communist Party is certainly hoping that that's what they do. Um, but regardless, it, it's still it's an indication that there's a, a real growing economic crisis that's brewing in China. Um, I think it's going to dwarf what the coronavirus from uh, Wuhan has been that came from China. Uh, and even though they're trying to um, they're trying to protect their own economy, I don't think they're going to be able to. We'll, we'll, you know, time will tell, but we'll see. Okay, so in your view, what happens? I mean, that's a I mean, that's a really complicated question, but I think what's going to happen is I think you're going to get a, a waves of default. Uh, either You're either going to get waves of default or you're going to get a bailout from Western governments to protect large institutional investors like Goldman Sachs and, and other big money funds uh, that are going to go to the government begging them to protect them. Um, basically, it's just rewarding them for failure. Yes. I mean, there's that socialist issue, but um, we're at a point in time where our government is in, is um, is trapped in a box. Uh, they can't just keep printing money because inflation is starting to get out of control. Uh, but if they and if they continue to let inflation get out of control, interest rates are going to come up. 
when you have a $30 trillion debt, it's a little easy to carry that when interest rates are zero and you just keep adding to the debt every year. Uh, if interest rates were to go up to say 10%, oh. 10% on 30 trillion is $3 trillion a year. Our federal budget is only about four and a half trillion. Oh. I mean, and that's, I mean, that's before you factor in all the super special, extra, you know, the Build Back Better plans and all these extra plans that they're putting in. But even if you say five trillion, I mean, if we spend $3 trillion on debt service, that's more than half of the federal budget. I mean, it's going to, it'll collapse our economy. So uh, interest rates can't go up, but if they don't go up, inflation is going to get out of control. So our government is, is increasingly being put in a box. It's not clear what they're going to wind up doing. It's not clear that there's anything they can do. Um, and that's part of why I've been saying all along that their solution is going to be to just throw the dollar overboard and come back with a digital currency, which allows them to control us in ways that the vaccine passport even doesn't get let them control okay. us. So not to nitpick on words, but did they put themselves in this box or did it happen by them or to them being in this box? Just a rhetorical question. Well, but. it's it, it happened as a combination of the Fed printing money to infinity and the government being willing to spend money to infinity. You know, a couple of weeks ago on the show, I, I mentioned that one of the real ironic things about the whole Biden inflation thing is that it's really a Trump inflation and an Obama inflation and that the Republicans are just as much to blame for it, at least on the spending side as, sure. as and the Bush are. and, you know, I mean, looking at Bush goes back pretty far. Right. But I'm just saying, do you think they did it on purpose or they just were stupid? Um. I have a hard time believing they're so stupid they don't know what they're doing. All of these people in these places of power that they didn't know what they were, what their actions were leading to. Do they I agree with you when it comes to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is the one that's been printing the money uh, really to infinity since about 2008 to 2010. Uh, 2009, 2010, they just started printing money and they really haven't stopped. There's no way that they don't they didn't know that this would eventually have to happen. Um, whether they evaded it or I, I'm not sure what could possibly have been going through their heads. I don't know. But um, on the spending side, I, I, I'm a little I think it's more stupidity. I think they don't understand economics and the Fed has basically bailed them out on the spending decisions by printing, by having an accommodative money printing policy. And instead of the spending leading to, you know, some sort of outside constraint, like, a, you know, we just had this week, the debt limit was raised yet again. And we've, we've gone to the brink on the debt limit raises yeah. for, for years. And every time it gets raised, you know, I mean, I understand economics, so I think that's foolish, but I can understand some of these morons in Congress thinking, well, this, you know, it does, it hasn't bitten us in the ass already. So why are we worried about it going forward? I mean, every time that it seems to, you know, they, they cry wolf, but you know, nothing ever happens. So I don't know. I have two questions for you, Ed. Um, if you can explain to us plain folk, why does rising interest rates stave off inflation? And also even more fun, we owe a lot of that money to 
ourselves in the form of one pocket gives to the other pocket. So how does that work when you default on yourself? Well, starting with the second question, I'm not sure what you mean by that. I mean, a bondholder is still a bondholder. Stuff is bought by the treasury or the treasury buys from the Federal Reserve or something. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, it's resold in the secondary market. And there are, there are investors, generally institutional investors like pension funds, like banks, like insurance companies that wind up buying the, the majority of the debt. Um, yes, the so initial buyer might- You did just because that, you did just- No, no, no. When the, when the Federal Reserve engages in uh, open market operations, what it's basically doing is it's, um, it's either buying securities or selling securities. And- um, but when they buy, they buy with money that they just create. And when they sell, uh, they retire the money that is used to pay it. So, um, the money supply goes up and goes down. Um, when they try to raise interest rates, this is again on short-term securities. What they basically do is incentivize people to either buy and hold securities or, or sell them. And so that they can, they can manipulate the money supply by, um, they can manipulate the interest rates by buying and selling at the interest, the target interest rate and seeing what people do. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And, uh, you know, in principle, it makes banks, um, lend more or lend less. When banks lend, they create money. When banks retire, when loans are retired, money is uh, deleted. So the cheaper, you know, the interest rates are, the more banks lend, and thus the more money is created, the more expensive loans are, the higher the interest rates, the fewer loans banks give out, existing loans are retired, and the money supply goes down. So that, I mean, that's the two-minute terrible explanation of Yes, that's basically what I was going to say in answer to your first question, Steve. That when, when interest rates go up, more people when when interest rates go up, fewer people want to borrow money. So there's less lending, there's less credit expansion, there's less monetary expansion. When interest rates are held artificially low, there's an artificially high demand for borrowing. And that borrowing is is affected through money creation at the bank level. And the money supply expands. There are more dollars that are chasing the goods. Inflation increases. That's basically the what happens. Right. And the way to hold the interest rate down is only by printing money so it remains cheap. I mean, that's the primary method. I mean, there's also the, the discount window that they use, but it's not. that's not their primary tool. Their primary tool, uh, the discount window is the overnight lending rate that they'll give to the banks. Banks have reserve requirements, but the reserve requirements have almost been completely waived. Uh, but in theory, if, they, if they're if they short on reserves, they have to borrow from the Fed as the lender of last resort. And they can up and they can, if they raise that interest rate, <clears throat> banks are gonna be less likely to loan their own money out because they don't wanna have to borrow from the Fed at a higher interest rate. So that's another tool they have. But the primary tool they have is the open market transactions that Ed was describing. Okay, and this is mostly governed by the Fed. Yes. Yeah, the, but the Fed is the banks and the banks are the Fed. So yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly the Fed and the banks together. 
I mean, some people on the open market, uh, the federal open market committee are appointed by the president, but others are appointed by the bank. So it's. Is it correct to say, um, for my lay purposes here, that these major decisions are made by a handful of unelected people? Oh, yeah. Of course. And do those handful of unelected people have any consequences for their actions? No, of course. Nobody in government has consequences for their actions. But they have this theory now called mon modern monetary theory. And yeah. in, in brief, it means something true. The United States can't default on its debt because we can always print money to pay the debts. Um, but uh, the theory goes on and says, basically, we just keep printing money um, without consequence. And I, I think that that's, that's a simplification, but that's basically what it says. And, um, you know, even, even Apollo here knows that that's ridiculous. So, uh, and I think what happened, this theory was developed in the last 12 years or so when they did print a lot of money and it did not seem that um, consumer prices were rising that high. I mean, they were because they changed the definition of the consumer price index, but um, it did not seem that bad until this year, last year or so, um, when the printing, when the money creation got really out of control. So, I mean, the Fed said today something on the order of that it was um, thinking about raising interest rates three times next year. And of course, bonds compete with stocks. So, if they actually start raising the rates, uh, the stock market will fall and um, the bond market will rise as people buy bonds. And, but this, when the stock market falls, then everybody's 401k falls, including mine, and uh, people aren't very happy about that, especially rich people. So the rich people put pressure on their buddies uh, who put pressure on the Fed to not raise the interest rates. But uh, at some One point- One minor correction to that, Ed? Uh, when interest rates go up, that doesn't lead to a bond market rally. Not all the time, no. Yes. I mean, if it usually would really lead, lead to the opposite because everybody who's currently holding a bond at you know zero percent or even you say one percent, if interest rates suddenly jump up to ten percent, your bond with one percent is worthless. Is it, yes, or it, it goes down yeah. in value? Yes, absolutely. Um, Yeah, it's a little part of the bull market. Part of the bull market over the last 40 years has been the continuing drop in interest rates. So if interest rates were 8% and then they get cut to 6%, everybody who has an 8% bond is making really good interest payment money on their interest coupons. So that bond becomes valuable. You get a rally in the bond market. And then the 6% rate gets cut to 5%. And you have the same thing happen. And the, as they've cut it all the way down towards zero, the, the bond market has had a 40 year rally. Um, they've taught, you know, some countries, uh, Switzerland, uh, a couple of countries have had uh, not just zero interest rates, but negative interest rates. Um, and they've tried how, that. How is that possible? I mean, it's basically I the mean, bond is like the equivalent of a security deposit box. You pay them to hold, hold your money, right? So you give them a million dollars and you have to pay them $50,000 as the fee, just like it were a safety deposit box. And then mm. at the end of the term, instead of getting your million with interest, you get $950,000 back, something like that. Um, and, but even as long as they could keep pushing interest rates lower, even if it was in the negative direction, 
That was a way of extending the bond market rally. Um, and that was a way that, that the central banks have been accommodating the Goldman Sachs's of the world to try and help them continue to make profits even in a zero interest rate world. All right, this goes somewhat over my head. I hate to admit. Me too. That's why I ask questions. Yeah, but it still goes over my head even asking questions. Sorry. Well, it's not your well, fault. You know, it doesn't sound it. like um, a good direction or good options lie ahead. Well, that's exactly my point. What, the, like I said, the Fed is in a position where if it raises rates, it's going to create defaults on the, uh, for the U.S. government if not also on in the private sector, because a lot of private sector debt is adjustable rate mortgages and adjustable interest rates. So if interest rates start going up, borrowers who are depending upon a, you know, a three or 4% mortgage suddenly have to pay a 7% mortgage or an 8% mortgage. They're not going to be able to make their mortgage payments and they're going to default on their houses. So if they raise interest rates, they're going to create defaults. But if they keep suppressing interest rates, inflation is just going to continue to get out, spiral out of control. So they're based, the, the only real solution right now is just to dr dramatically cut spending on the spending side. But that's something that nobody is willing to do. Can I ask a stupid question then? Because, I mean, I recall, gosh, it's been 10 years now where I hear them saying, and they, they typically bring up World War II as their really good example of how Government injections of money are so good for the economy. The economy soars when the government spends boatloads of money, when the government injects boatloads of money. And so now, though, what we're seeing is it's hurting the economy. So is that just because it's been happening for too long and now it's been no. Printed. The story about World War II, and it, it's a lie. I mean, first of all, there was no booming economy during World War II. People were living on ration coupons. No, but right after, like because of all this spending. Okay, let me help you. Let me explain that. What the reason for the boom after the after the war was not because of government injections of money. Number one, government spending declined precipitously right after World War II ended. But number two. Because there were no consumer goods produced during World War II, but people were working full time in the war economy, what does that mean? That means that they were saving the entire time. So they had all this savings pent up. And then once, uh, once the war ended, they had all this money that they saved and they went and they spent it. And they, you know, they were able to drive the economy, the consumer economy that way. Um, government spending doesn't, doesn't promote the economy. So that is make, a huge theory. I hear that all the time. Right. It's, it's taught in basic economics outlets. 101 classes. Paul Krugman. I mean, they are saying Have when you, heard you Paul know, Krugman, he's a moron. I, know. I had to bring him into it because, you know, <laughs> it's amazing but, that his textbook is, is taught in basic economics classes. He's a complete moron. That's because he won a Nobel Prize, didn't he? So did yeah, Obama. Well, you know what? What effect won, you know, prizes for their politifiction, but so I don't think those, wait, Obama won a nobody. Listen, it's a joke, isn't it? <laughs> so they're really, I mean, Ed, if, if you were the dictator tomorrow and at absolute power, is there a sweet spot for all this or it's just constant like steering, you're always moving it? Well, the first thing we do is we line up all the totalitarians on a boat and we send them out into the middle of the ocean. There'll be more than one boat, but okay. Yes. 
Um, if I were addicted, I mean, like I said, the only real solution it, it, that could possibly work would be to drastically cut spending. On the if, they drastically, if they drastically cut spending, then you could make some of these other things work. If they're not willing to cut spending, I think they're caught between a rock and a hard place and there's really okay. nothing they can do. But is, okay, two things. We know that's politically untenable, right? Yep. They can't do it. And this is a pox upon American voters for sure. But don't you think there really would be, let's just say they did that, there would be a tank in the economy briefly. Don't you think there would be some sort of, it's not the, the, I don't think the economy would go like that. I think there well, would be when a you tank. take away the artificial stimulus. Sure. I mean, there would be some negative consequences initially, but that would be, I mean, it's sort of like, um, I don't I mean, they would scare people with that is all I'm saying. Well, I think people are going to get really scared when they see what happens to either inflation getting way out of control or, I mean, they're not going to, if they try and raise interest rates to, to flush out inflation, there's nothing, there's no way to avoid the kind of crushing of the private sector that we're talking about. I mean, I know, but not just the private, the whole country. But see, when that happens, the Democrats can blame capitalism. If the de- if if government just cuts spending and bad things happen, they'll blame. Oh, see, small well, government hurts you. It's not good for you. If they let it, that go is what the Democrats course. are going to do. But that's why I think that the the real big story last week that I pointed out was that this is being talked about as the Biden inflation. It's going to be really hard for the Democrats to to blame the coming economic collapse on capitalism and on the Republicans when, for whatever stupid reason, they've allowed Biden to be tagged with this inflation. Because I think whatever happens coming coming next is going to be blamed on the inflation. What I think I think that it's not I I don't know. This is just my tinfoil hat theory, but there's a reason why all of a sudden they're letting Biden get labeled appropriately. You know, they have, when I say they, I typically mean Democrats and the leftists, media and others in in cahoots, but they're usually really good at uh, controlling narratives. And the fact that they've let this narrative about Biden suddenly become the truth, a, a better reflection of the truth, I don't think it's an accident. I think it's strategy. There's something else coming. They want, I think they want Biden to be seen truthfully because they've got something else up their sleeve and they don't want to appear as, they want it to appear as, oh yeah, no, he just needs to, I don't know. They, they want the truth to appear so they can do something with it that maybe. Well, I've been predicting all year that, that next year is going to be some big, big event. And as I mentioned in September, the real, the real warning sign for me was when the Democrats and AOC and the squad allowed all the unemployment benefits to not only end, but to end without a, without a fight, without a word being said. Um, they know that something really bad is coming and they're looking, for the cri- they're looking to make the crisis worse and they think they're going to take advantage of the crisis. There's no doubt in my mind that that's what's going on. Um, 
And, you know, I also said in the last couple of weeks that um, it looks to me like both the Biden administration and the Chinese government see war in their interests. Um, and I was thinking about Taiwan. Um, the Ukraine-Russia situation has developed since then, and it looks like Biden is interested in fighting a war there, too. Um, you can get some really negative consequences from, from wars. On the, on the other hand, you hear that Biden is trading away eastern Ukraine and doesn't want a war. So how do we even know what's going on? We, we don't know for sure what's going on. I mean, maybe the Democrats are, are scared by some of the pu pu uh, pushback that's been that they've felt from uh, from the public about going to war. Um, people remember, you know, one thing about Trump is he didn't start any wars, even though he was pushed to do it. Um, but I, I do think something big is coming next year. Um, I, I still think that their that their ultimate end game is the digital currency and that they're going to get it. They're going to try and get it through an economic crisis. Um, that's that's my theory. Um, you know, I hate to sound like, you know, one of these, you know, people on the street saying the the end of the world is coming and they just keep changing the date on their sign. Um, you know, I, I realize I'm making a prediction and maybe it's not going to come true or maybe it's going to be later than I think. But that's what I think is coming. I, I think there's going to be a big economic event next year. It might be in conjunction with a military event, but uh, I think there's a big economic event on our near horizon. I hope you're wrong, but... Well, what it's worth, I hope I'm wrong too, Jody. You can only get to benefit me. So far, you know, it's funny. I was listening this morning. I don't know when it originally played, but it was Jim Jordan talking to Glenn Beck. And Glenn Beck is like, you know, what's going to be different in 2023 if you take over? And what's going to be different in 2025? And then Jim Jordan, who I like, he gets off into fantasy land how Speaker McCarthy is going to do A, B, and C. And I can't imagine anybody in the world thinks Speaker McCarthy would do any of those things. There's zero reason to believe that he would do a thing. I sure hope that if the Republicans take the House, it's not Speaker McCarthy. And Jim Jordan literally said Speaker McCarthy. And Jim Jordan's one of the best that we have. And for all that Gates and Green and um, what's her name? Boebert think they're taking over Congress. Even if there's a hundred of them, they're still not taking over anything. And I don't see the Republicans ever turning back anything. And proof being that they didn't when they controlled everything, whatever it was four years ago. So I want to switch tunes. Um, I'll just go in any order that I can. Living in the communist state of New York City or communist city of New York City, where they just passed this thing allowing 800,000 non-citizens to vote in local elections. Is that the end of the world? What does that mean? Is there any I know there's some talk of legal challenges because somewhere it says something about citizens, but what's your opinion, Ed? I think that we, we're seeing the purpose of illegal immigration play out right before our eyes. That's always been what their goal was. Bring in these illegal people and make them into Democrat voters. That's always been the end game. And that's what this is. Now, if there's no way to stop non-citizens from voting, then there's never gonna be a way to reverse what goes on in places like New York City, right? You can't put that genie back in the bottle because they will control the elections even more as if they need to in New York City. I think that's right. I mean, that's really, really scary. 
And do you know of anything in the laws that, that will block non-citizens from voting? Have you thought about it, looked into it? I mean, off the top of my head, I haven't thought about it, but off the top of my head, Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitu federal Constitution says that the federal government guarantees to every state a Republican form of government. And I suppose you could make the argument that granting the right to vote to non-citizens is uh, violates the uh, violates that principle that, that, that we have a Republican form of government because you're getting representatives for people that are not citizens. Yeah, they always go back to taxation without representation, blah, blah, blah. Well, that, that provision has never been used in a majority opinion. Um, it's never been relied upon authority on, in any court case, um, but there's always a first for everything. I think it's scary also, they named the new police commissioner of New York City, and you'll be shocked to know that it's not a white male, <laughs> and it's not the first um, black to run the New York City Police Department, but apparently the new mayor had promised a woman. So just like we have a vice president who had to check off boxes, we will now have a police commissioner. I mean, I just saw her in the gym on TV smiling and this is like the super celebration. You know, maybe she's good, maybe she's not, but whenever you limit who you're gonna pick for an incredibly important job, police commissioner, everybody knows we have 38,000 police people in New York City which is staggeringly large. And you've knocked off 50% of the population who can't even compete for such a job. And all I can say is, uh, God save us. Not that it could be well, worse than what it's been the last few months or so, because it's pretty much totally out of control crime-wise, but. Well, the good news is that no matter what the results of her leadership, she's beyond reproach. You can't criticize her because that, you know, that's part that, of the thing. The woman, so it's irrelevant whether she's good or she's bad. No Pretty criticism bad. is allowed. I mean, I, I mean, know that- No real policing is allowed either. So I'm not sure it really matters. At the moment, from what I can tell, um, police are getting out as fast as they can. And those remaining are getting staggering amounts of overtime right now um, because of, what's going on with the police. Like everybody knows when that tree caught fire, the guy was, you know, out before the cops finished processing him. And then he was back a few blocks away at Rockefeller Center shortly thereafter, smiling at the cops. And I don't know where this one's going to end. Maybe this lady will tighten things up, but. But I think that's, I think that the police officers leaving the forces is, is also all part of the plan. That's that's not a bug. That's a feature of what they're doing. Oh, I think it's a feature from those in power, 100 percent. This but again, is their, it cause chaos. Well, not just to cause it, part of it is to cause chaos, but it's even more diabolical than that. This is their way of instead of giving a, you know, some sort of a, a test to see who's a Trump supporter or who's a law and order supporter. They just create conditions where any cop that wants to support law and order has to resign. And and then the ones who are left and the ones they hire in their place are all tools of the regime. This is, this is their way of, you know, when, when Hitler took power on January 30th, 1933, what was the first, one of the first things he did was, I mean, the SA basically became the police. And that's what's going on here. They're trying to make all the good police leave and they're going to replace them with, with BLM types and Antifa types. That's what's going on. And this is their way of getting away with doing that without, uh, you know, telegraphing it or making it, you know, obvious. 
Okay, so it's sort of like what they're doing in the military. We're not going to kick you out, but if you yep. don't get the vaccination, we will. Exactly. It's the same. It's the same playbook. Exactly right. And it's working, I think, pretty well. For them. Yeah, for them who want to just destroy a country, which apparently they're really good. Um, what do you make of this? The big story this week about Facebook apparently saying in a court document that fact checks are not fact checks. Have you seen that? I hope John Stossel winds up owning Facebook. I hope so too. What do you think his chances are having read some of the, or well, I'm assuming you read some of that, like. Um, I read the stories about the, the Facebook admitting in court papers that their fact Did you read the, just the court file that court file by Facebook that had that admission? No, I didn't read the whole court file. I didn't read the whole. Uh, they like gave their argument of why Stossel's going to lose, and so and I don't. know. I mean, Stossel is a public figure, and it's almost impossible for a public figure to to recover to win a defamation case. Um, it's not enough to prove that what the that the what the other side did was defamatory. It's not enough to show that it was false. You have to show that they either knew it was false or that they subjectively entertained serious doubts as to whether it was false, which is, which is an almost impossible standard. Almost no, nobody can prove it. Um, you know, if, if I think Stossel is going to be able to prove that they set up a system that, uh, that probably is run by artificial intelligence as much by as by ordinary people and the system itself is just is making some of these decisions there's no thought process whatsoever it's just being done and maybe it's negligence maybe they should have had better artificial intelligence but that's not enough that's not enough to to make a defamation case against so a public figure assuming you're correct why would they bother making that argument because as a lawyer, you make every argument that you can. Not the ones that bury you. Um, but that's not necessarily an argument that buries them. It only buries them in the court of public opinion. It but that's where, that's where it matters. Because that's A is going to hit their, um, you know, the amount of people on those sites. Europe already is giving out what they gave like a $1.3 billion fine. I forget to who, Facebook, Amazon. There's enough backlash for that. And then the popular push towards getting rid of 230. So why admit such a thing publicly? If you don't need it, they got plenty of other arguments, I would think. Or it's not stupid. I mean, I'd have to be part of the brain trust. I don't know what their strategy sessions were saying, but I think that they just said, this is an important gun, uh, bullet in our chamber and we're, gonna, we're not gonna go down without firing it. Um, I hate to say our lawyers dumb enough, but are they dumb enough to not realize that everything that you file in a court does come out beyond just Westlaw? Uh, I mean, again, as a lawyer, I mean, I am a lawyer. And, you know, while I would point that out, I'd point that out to my client. I would still say this is an important legal argument. I, I, I'll leave it to you as to as the client to, to tell me whether you think you'd like me to make that argument or not. Uh, but I mean, number one, as a lawyer, I practice law. I don't let my clients practice law for me. Uh, and number two, you know, the client, the client may consent to doing it anyway. Um, if I'm looking at these companies, I don't think Facebook and I don't let's just use Facebook. I don't think that they're particularly concerned about public opinion. 
They've been perfectly happy alienating 50% of the population for a long time. Uh, if you look at the value of that company, you know, from two years ago, or even one year ago, well, maybe a little more than a year ago, I mean, I barely use it anymore. I, I mean, it used to be a real big tool for me. I used to, you know, participate a lot. Lots of people either don't participate or have just completely vacated the platform. And Facebook doesn't care. I don't see them making any effort to try and reverse that. I don't see them. I mean, it's clear, you know, Stossel's lawsuit is just symptomatic. They know that these fact checks are driving people off the platform. They don't care. They, they want those people to leave. So I don't think that they're so worried about making that admission. They want those people gone. They don't want Trump and all his people being able to use Facebook to, to amplify those views in the public sphere. You're saying they kind of gone full CNN. They don't care if they have no clientele. I think that they feel like they've got a clientele that's dependable and that's all they want. You know, they see they, they've been made it's been made clear to them what their role is in the coming totalitarian structure, and they're comfortable with it. They're going to make their money. They're going to have their profit, um, and it's not going to be based on a free market. They're going to get paid, and they don't care. They're going to do. They're going to do. They're going to play their role in in the coming uh, awful situation that they're helping to to create. Right, and then dot dot dot. Not even caring if they compete anymore with other such platforms. Why should they care? They want their guaranteed profit. That's what they, they, they're going to get guaranteed money. And if they don't get it from customers and clients, they'll get it from government, from the government somehow. You know, the government, maybe the government will pay them to do get out the vote schemes like Zuckerberg did over the last election. Right. Zuckerberg. Paid I mean, for that. Huh? Didn't Zuckerberg pay for that. Yeah. Well, maybe next time he'll get a government contract to pay for it. Okay. So they're no longer a growing entity they're now we're okay where we are and we'll make our money and run the world and to hell with our clientele which i guess is you know it's part of what happens to so many woke businesses instead of the purpose of a business being to make money for investors it's now just to do the woke thing and heck with the investors which is kind of what you're saying kind of what i'm saying yeah my idea uh i back in the day a long time ago, before the income tax, the government used to make money through excise taxes. Now, some of these excise taxes were quite uh, controversial, led to the Whiskey Rebellion, but I have a new idea. Let's have the federal government put an excise tax of uh, something simple, a penny, on every social media post payable by the social media company. Uh, how's that for an idea to destroy these companies? Or uh, um, let's see, we can do it a, a penny, uh, over, you know, a million, you know, more than a million social, you know, something stupid like that. And why isn't there an excise tax on, on like movies? Let's, let's do excise tax on, on movies. Um, I, I really, I, you know, of course I'm anti-tax in principle, but it's time to start taking back power and start using against our enemies. And I think uh, the social media companies, you, you wouldn't even have to do it. You just have to get it past the committees and onto the floor before they start panicking and and uh, start willing to make a deal on the whole censorship thing. I think that's, we really ought to think about, you know, again, if the Republicans get power in 22 or 24, start uh, figuring out ways to really hurt the people who are 
interfering with free speech. I think. Yeah, uh, but you know what? What's going to happen? So uh, play that out. If they were to impose a um, excise tax on social media platforms or movies, of course, you know that those industries are going to stand up and say, "We have to pass those costs on to." users and movie theater goers and Absolutely. they're not going to be 100%. happy about that and so 100%. they're not gonna they're they're gonna get everybody angry on their behalf how dare you tax my movie more in that way and so they're gonna they're actually gonna come out better in the long run anything I, I just don't see that happening well i would take um you know testicular fortitude which none of the conservatives <laughs> seem to have but uh yeah I, I i agree but it's something that is within the government's known power that could really hurt see anybody who gives you uh you know something for free is not you know that's not the product you're the product right and so that the the googles and the facebooks and the twitters of the world give away for free and it's about time that that get changed. And I think um, an excise tax tax idea would would be a way to get it changed. Well, maybe a way, but it, it, nobody's going to do it because there's not a lot of interest in doing it. And uh, I've never heard of it before until I said it just now. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's the fact that you've never heard it doesn't mean it's, uh, you know, it's impossible. It just means we, hit, we haven't actually told anybody about in Europe it. they call it a VAT tax right no 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 an excise tax there's excise taxes on like ammunition and guns and there's what's the difference tax. between an excise tax and a VAT it's, it's product, specific product specific product yeah. specific it's a product specific tax yes isn't that what a VAT is though no you at it that is sort of like a an income tax imposed at the business level yeah uh, sort of a it's kind of a sales tax really I mean, in the sense that uh, it's indistinguishable from you added. I mean, when, when from a, a consumer perspective, yeah. it's indistinguishable from a sales tax. And the uh, the issue with a, a sales tax is that um, I suppose the federal government does have the ability to do it, but um, what used to be done was these product specific taxes, which are you know, which are perfectly constitutional. And they were done, um, again, whiskey was the obvious one, led to the whiskey rebellion. Um, you just have to, maybe not a cent, maybe a hundredth of a cent, just anything other than zero. That's all I want. And it's something other than zero. Because then the casual people would uh, leave and the hardcore would stay, which is fine. And, uh, um, and the other uh, competing free, uh, you know, free speech alternatives. I mean, they would probably have to charge something too, but at least it would it would destroy the network effect that has propped up Google and Facebook, um, and which essentially would destroy their business model and hopefully destroy the companies. And that's you know the goal. The government is is not really good at regulating, but they're really good at destruction, and that's what I aim for here: I, the destruction of these companies. Okay. Hmm. COVID stories, folks. Once again, New York State, so they made this new mandate about masks, which I can't figure out if it changes anything in New York City. As a matter of fact, the governor here seemed to say it doesn't change much in New York City. 
but it changes a lot in the state that you have to wear a mask in any business that doesn't require you to be vaccinated to enter. I think that's how it's working. And what's kind of interesting about this is a bunch of counties in New York state are saying, hell no, which is interestingly enough, there are a few counties in New York that aren't totally given over to the liberal world. And apparently, according to at least one story, she's not going to fight it. And just as many stories that are out there about different universities imposing tighter mandates and different other jurisdictions imposing tighter mandates, there's also a lot of stories out there about hospitals dropping the mandates. Amtrak is dropping its mandate. And I think the funniest story I saw was in LA, they're going to delay the vaccine mandate until fall of next year. Now, I, I almost couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> what in the world? Is, thank you, Jody. What is that even? <laughs> well, it's about science. It's about so science. We're fair. <laughs> so next year, when hopefully this will all be behind us, we will do a mandate, but we won't do a mandate now. I mean, obviously, we know well, pressure for the third shots and pressure for the shots for the over five group, et cetera. But they're making a decision almost a year in advance based on science. That, that's really unbelievable. <laughs> I haven't seen oh, the story, but could it be related to the fact that the sheriff of L.A. County refuses to enforce these mandates? Um, I don't know why if they're doing it, because it's um, it's the unified school district. Yeah, well, they can um, they can forecast the weather 100 years in the future, so they can definitely <laughs> forecast. I, sorry, I forgot about that. Next fall. Right. So that's true. With two hands tied behind their back, I guess. I, yeah. Just, you know, I get saying we're going to suspend it, but to say we're going to put it into effect in the fall of 2022, if it doesn't apply to the entire thing, I don't know what does. Well, I've got an even funnier story for you, if you'll <laughs> allow me. This comes from Tom Woods. Moderna just announced that it's withdrawing from the upcoming JP Morgan Healthcare Conference in New York City because of COVID concerns. Okay, you wanna unpack that? The same people whose vaccine was described as extraordinarily effective are afraid to attend a conference full of vaccinated people in a city that requires proof of vaccination to enter a huge array of indoor venues. Now, if that isn't peak COVID, I don't know what. Have, can you send that to me? Yeah, I'll send it. It's from Tom, Tom Woods, the you know libertarian uh, podcast guy. <laughs> That's just genius. Are they willing to attend somewhere else or they won't attend <laughs> What's there? I, I don't know, but I mean, that seems uh, less than 100% confident in their, uh, in their vaccine is all I can tell you. Well, there's another story there that apparently Pfizer has released some documents and it's coming out that even they can't hide all the adverse events that are going on. Um, of course, they want 75 years to release all of it, which, again, is kind of funny, but. Yeah, the um, apparently I've, I've heard that Twitter is not allowing any tweets. Now, I, one would wonder exactly how they do this, probably from people who have a lot of followers, probably not from me because I have like eight followers, but that say uh, the vaccines are less than 100% effective or that there's too many adverse events or that you can get COVID even when you have the vaccine or you can pass COVID even when you have the vaccine, all of which are 100% true that everybody, including St. Fauci, uh, has agreed. Mm -hmm. Twitter won't let you, uh, if you have large enough followers, um, say that in a tweet. 
And it's, it's gotten to be, it, it, it's gotten to the point where it's just comedic. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't, you know, Libsyn, who we use, uh, you know, hasn't cracked down, but I wonder whether Libsyn isn't next. I, I don't know. It's a good question. It's hard to understand. I mean, I guess it's not hard to understand how so many Americans are able to swallow this doublespeak. I think it's very scary because- I think they have short-term memories, number one. What's and that? Number, two, number one, people have short-term memories. Number two, I think so many people are just busy and they're capturing little pieces of information up top. And the little pieces of information that are up top don't uh, criticize or question any of it. Yeah. So, I mean, I our willing to, it's like our willingness to believe that the price of chocolate went down. It, it just scares me how far down that hole we've gone. Because you look people in the eye about these mass things. And I have to tell you, there are committed liberals in New York that I know personally who have started to laugh about the masks and the vaccines and gotten you know, it's an N of four, but it is something. People are getting totally fed up and just, you know, no more. But there's still plenty of people in this country, obviously, who don't mind. There'd be, there'd be total rebellion. I was in a meeting this afternoon and we were talking about whether we should have a meeting in February. And I said, well, I mean, I, who knows what the COVID cult is going to say then? And, uh, you know, I think we should probably plan on a, a real life meeting kind of in April when the weather's better. And, and nobody spoke against me saying the COVID cult because I think, they, I think people understand that it's a cult. It's a, it's a media cult. It's a, it's a scientism cult. It's a, you know, it's a, they're crazy. You gotta say pseudoscience cult because it's not an actual science cult. The scientism yeah. cult. I right. mean, to an extent people are fed up with how many people in power have been caught without masks, et cetera, et cetera realizing, you know, it just contributes to how much of a joke the whole thing is. Well, I, I'm very happy though. I mean, a lot, I'd say we're now back up to 80 to 90% people wearing masks in the grocery store around here, again, close to Mordor. But, um, but nobody has come up to me and said, why aren't you wearing a mask? So I, I think um, that's positive maybe, I don't know, I, I haven't, I, 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 I haven't encountered a mask, Karen. Um, so I guess that's okay. I guess that's better. I don't know. Usually I'm the more optimistic of the bunch, but I, I just, you know, and I'm living in probably the, the most free part of the country of, of the four of us here. I don't see what you guys are seeing. I don't think that, I don't think that they're losing control of the cult. I mean, maybe it, maybe on, maybe at the, at some individual level, maybe at the, you know, maybe at the consumer level, but at the government level, they are dug in. And the way I see it, I think they're pushing forward full steam ahead. I don't think they see any reason to slow down. No, I think the government is pushing pretty much full steam ahead, except for the story about the governor doesn't want to fight these counties. But it, I mean, you're in a relatively small city, correct? Relatively. Right. And are you finding that people are wearing masks and bothering others about wearing masks? I don't see anybody bothering people about wearing masks other than when you go into a doctor's office or a hospital. Um, 
but I do see a, I mean, there, there are a fair number of people who wear masks even around here. I mean, it's certainly not the 80% that Ed sees up in his part of the country, but um, there are definitely people here that are wearing masks. There are even idiots that I see in the car that are by themselves that have their masks still on, you know, just while they're alone in their car. The ones jogging down the street when there's nobody within 100 yards, etc. But I don't really mind so much people wearing masks as long as nobody bothers me about it. I also get a big kick out of people wearing masks, hugging each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I, I just, it seems to me anecdotally that a lot of people are just laughing it off as much as the government keeps pushing it and pushing it. Jody, uh, in your neck of the woods. Well, we're still on a full state mask mandate. We have been for a while. And but are people bothering very, each other when they pull it below their nose? Yeah, up? sometimes. Not always. I mean, I've heard stories from people, but. I do uh, notice that most employees or required to wear masks in stores or like have it on their chin or whatever. They don't care. Nobody yeah. cares. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Are people cheating a little bit more? They, right on the tip of their nose. And yeah. they're daring. I, see, I do see that a lot. So I, um, we went to a high school concert last week and the singers are in the front and they're forced to sing in masks. Naturally, they're all vaccinated. Behind them are the horns. And the people with the horns aren't wearing masks. And I'm having trouble figuring that one out. <laughs> now, some say did they have plexiglass even... around them, Steve? I'm sorry? Did they have plexiglass around them? No, they that for sure they did not. Some people saying there were masks out there with holes for the horn blowers. If so, I still don't understand exactly what they, that does. They're blowing their air through the horn and then it's going out the horn the other end. Am I wrong? It makes the noise, isn't it? I mean, especially somebody playing a flute. And it, it just going out that flute. It blows the mind. And then behind them were the, you know, the violins and stuff. And yet you're not allowed to say anything that this doesn't make any sense. Now I know sitting next to me, there was one person bothering that somebody else wasn't wearing a mask in the right way. And it, where is the sense? How can anybody not see through that? You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. It was uh, probably, it was not long after this pandemic started when we were wearing masks. Actually, it was a little bit before we started the show. And my big thing was, how do you know? How is it? How does science know that it's not actually going to make it worse because you can't control proper use in a public setting? You know, you've heard it before. My argument is, why are we suggesting that it's safe that somebody have something on their face and touching it that could be soaked with COVID and they're taking it off, they're putting it on their table, which is getting it on all their things. They're putting it in their pocket by their wallet and then they take their wallet out it's got COVID on it now and they give their credit card to the cashier and and to well, me dr fauci is science and he well, said i'm to sorry wear i know well this this was before he said he, yeah, the science c'est moi that but, i think but that the, was the, the exactly. thing that i found really disturbing and this was early on it's a friend of mine who i've always highly respected as he's a, a surgeon actually and he said to me well it just makes um, 
it's just common sense that, you know, a mask protects someone from this. And I said, it only makes common sense if you completely ignore everything I just brought up. If you, it, it only makes common sense if you assume that every single mask is clean, COVID-free, used properly. And this was a surgeon that I love. And the fact that this person was able to completely ignore every concern that I had and said, it just makes, it's just common sense that covering it's your face. It's the same common sense that, uh, you know, a chain link. How does this happen? I from getting well, so I just got confirmation at Broadway last night where someone close to me attended a show and know the people on stage who sing and dance and touch each other don't have to wear masks. Yeah, of course. I went to a Broadway show a couple of weeks Why ago. Is this a, no, but we just had a new mandate put in as of Monday. So by what rule? It just, it's just mind boggling. Well, but the mandate's well, not going to be enforced, right? So arbitrary. There you go. Jody, I, Jody, your story about the, the, the surgeon reminds me of a, a story you guys had in the show notes about the uh, hospital that refuses to administer ivermectin. Yeah, I wanted to get to that. And, and, and I can tell you as a lawyer, I'm actually participating in some cases uh, involving a similar situation. Just this past weekend, uh, I was working with a team of lawyers trying to get somebody, trying to get a hospital to administer ivermectin to a patient that wanted it and had an outside doctor prescribe it. But the doctor, of course, didn't have privileges and the hospital wouldn't administer it. So we, so we decided, okay, we will give a limited waiver. We will offer in writing a limited waiver of malpractice liability to the hospital for administering the ivermectin. And we said, well, now you have no basis, no good faith basis in law to deny the treatment. And they still won't do it. And, you know, we, we have, uh, we have some, some audio recordings of the doctors just point blank saying we're not going to administer this. And what's scary you know, it's the same the question story, you have, Joe. The story, the problem with the story you're referencing in Virginia, which blew my mind, is a judge ordered them to administer ivermectin. And they, they ignored said, it. No way. We don't care what you say. He put them in contempt for not. There's a better case. It was out of Ohio by um, by the Larigo law firm, which which is up in western New York outside Buffalo, uh, where he had actually gotten the court order to force the hospital to administer the ivermectin. The patient got better and was totally healed and went home. And the hospital is still appealing that order because they don't want to have to be forced to do it in the future. Wait, can I, I wanted to bring this up because is, is nobody here concerned about these institutions being compelled to do things? I, I, I kind of find it concerning. Like, oh, where is that at? Well, wait a minute. Wait, wait, let, me, let me address that. I mean, first of all, like number one, like I said, in, our, in, in the case that I was working on, we offered a waiver of, of malpractice liability. No, but still. And number two, ivermectin is a pill. It's not like they have to put a shot into them. It's not like it's surgery. It's not like they have to remove a bone or set a bone or something like that. It is carrying pills into the room, bringing a cup of water and saying, here, take this. And, and, There's and, nothing and, for and them to that, do. And in that scenario, it wasn't even one of their staff physicians who had to do it. It was literally just allowing a non-staff physician to come in and give them the pill. 
Last I checked, my body, my choice, we have a right to decide what goes into and not goes into our body. The patient is ultimately the one who, through informed consent, makes the final decision. Now, the patient doesn't get to sit there and stay awake during surgery and say, you know, use this scalpel, don't use that cut. You know, the, the doctor does get to do the surgery, but the patient is ultimately in charge of making the decision on what treatment he's going to pursue. And if the patient says, I want ivermectin, and it's a legal drug, and he has a prescription, there's no basis for denying that. I mean, the only basis would be, well, we don't think it's good. We think it'll cause harm, and we don't want malpractice. Now, I'm unaware of any hospital that actually argues or any doctor that argues ivermectin will cause harm, because it's been shown to be safer than Tylenol. But Nonetheless, they can say it's it deviates from the standard of care, so we don't want malpractice liability. In my case, you know, in, in this case I worked on last weekend and what we're going to do going forward, we're going to offer to waive malpractice liability. And not for not a, a full waiver, but a waiver related to administering ivermectin. And there's no reason for them to, to uh, deny to deny that request once the waiver of liability is offered. I think what's amazing to me is that a hospital's willing to risk being in contempt of court. Now, I'd never understood contempt of court doesn't necessarily mean anybody's ever punished for anything, correct? Well, you can have the sheriff or the U.S. Marshals go and drag them into prison or into the courtroom. I mean, Wait, the, the one in Virginia, period. if the judge wants. Yeah, the one I mean, in Virginia was uh, given $10,000 a day fine retroactive to December 9th, weren't they? So this is a financial. They're getting they financial are afraid penalized. of their licensing boards way more than they are about a judge. And if a judge says you have there to, it is. licensing board dares to sanction you for following a court order. But here's the thing. This Ed, I actually totally agree with that. But where in the world is their courage? I mean, they're, they're not, it's one thing if they just said, there's nothing we can do. They are affirmatively lying about the effectiveness of ivermectin, about the effectiveness of the counter of the treatments that they're giving like remdesivir. And they're lying to people and they're, they're, and they're not disclosing that they're being made to say anything under duress. They have an obligation to speak up. I've been complaining about that for a long time. This is, this is not the first issue where I see medical scientists abdicating their role in the sanctity of science, really. I mean, well, they I mean, have it, a role. This is tied, I mean, it goes back to, to climate change and global warming. Yeah. You get these scientists that are taking government money and they'll say what the client wants them to say. Mm-hmm. Instead of following the science, they're creating pseudoscience that's supposed to back up the claims. But it's not science. It's not real. And, you know, I just I, I have a real problem with these professionals that are unwilling to stand up and, and be Americans and fight for a free country. Well, I, mean, I would disagree for science. I would disagree with you, except for there seemingly are so many physicians who would do an abortion no matter what anybody says and no matter what a law is, no matter what a court would say. I don't know. I don't think that they're going to I don't think they're performing abortions in Texas right now. I don't know about that. I know there are people, there are doctors, I can't tell you how many, who have the courage to perform abortions later than they're allowed to. Um, And we know for sure that Planned Parenthood and possibly other places 
were performing abortions. Um, well, for sure, they were hiding the fact of how the girls got pregnant, and they were also doing certain things under the table. So for that, for the leftist causes, there are doctors who will have courage. I'm kind of wondering out loud, you know, for people who want assisted suicide where it's not legal, would doctors make such a stink? No, we can't do that. We can't do that. We can't do that. Or would they give in and write something else on the chart? And yet, uh, you know what, Steve, that's interesting because it sort of reminds me of the of the police, right? The police are supposed to be neutral arbiters of, of you know, law and order. They're not supposed to be picking sides. But not only are they picking sides, they're picking sides with the bad guys. Yes. The same thing with the with the doctors. They're supposed to be the neutral uh, purveyors of science. They're not supposed to be political. But not only are they being political, but they're being political contrary to science, contrary to what the science actually says. And I'm sorry, I, if the AMA is not willing to speak up, if if in, why aren't individual doctors willing to say no? I mean, nurses are, are losing their jobs. Soldiers have been discharged from the military. There are people that are willing to stand up and say, no, this is not right. And we're going to stand up and not take this. Why is the medical profession different? Why won't they stand up? And, and not only why, isn't they, why aren't they different? They're sort of a fulcrum on this whole thing. I mean, if they stood up and said, no, this is wrong, the whole thing collapses and it would all end. They're the ones who have the power to do that and they won't stand up and speak up. Well, you know, I think you guys know who Jay Bhattacharya is. He's been very Absolutely. outspoken. And when I testified in front of the New Hampshire uh, legislature, he testified right before I did. Oh, lucky you. Anywho, he's my favorite. I've been following him since the beginning. But, you know, one of his things is he says how often he hears people, fellow physicians saying they're just afraid to speak up. And when you watch, you know, people who signed on to the great Barrington Declaration, some physicians actually got fired just for signing on to it. So part of it, I think, is that they're afraid to speak up for those reasons. And some of them, too, I think, sadly, I can't figure it out. They're not questioning what they should be questioning. And they're buying, I don't, they're busy and they're buying into, I don't know. Besides licensing, it goes back to, even if they were going to risk it, this research money, which is totally apparently controlled by Fauci and the NIH. And even if a doctor will risk never being published again in his entire career, the hospitals cannot afford to risk all their billions and billions of dollars. Mm -hmm. So they will crush any doctor who rebels. Because what if CMS says, you know what, guys, you administered ivermectin, no more Medicare, Medicaid, goodbye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And okay, it, so where are the anonymous pamphlets by doctors saying, I'm a licensed doctor, I'm afraid to give my name, but here's what's really going on. Where, where are those pamphlets? Where, where well, are the well, there, I mean, I, yes, I mean, obviously we've all read some, right? Dr. Malone's on the you know, but Bhattacharya, oh, Dr. a bunch Malone, more, Dr. But, Ryan. but, um, they just censored Joe Rogan's interview with McCullough. Yeah. McCullough. Right. I mean, so that's, uh, the, the problem is there's plenty of these doctors and they're making plenty of pamphlets, but they're all banned from the major social media sites. Right. So, right. They can't do them on social media because they're trackable and what are they going to drop pamphlets on, you know, with an airplane over town. It's part of them controlling the whole, the whole social media world. Yeah, I agree with you, Ed. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I mean, uh, Substack is filled with people. I, I love Substack. I've now spent hundreds of dollars subscribing to various Substack people. Uh, 
um, who are pointing out all of the issues with regard to the vaccines and the um, mandates and the you know COVID itself, the origins of COVID and stuff like that. And you know, if you want to find out what's going on, Substack. Substack oh. is not cheap, correct? No, it's if I mean some people give everything away for free, some people give nothing away for free, some people do a, uh, a in between. But yeah, it's uh, to subscribe to a person generally speaking is fifty dollars a year. Right. I just don't see that really breaking into the world very big because that's a lot of money. No. Yes, I agree. I mean, 50 bucks a pop. And if you subscribe to 20 people, it's a fortune. So I don't know. Now, if we could save it with the you know gas prices going down two cents, so maybe we could save some of our money. But <laughs> that's the problem with Substack. I just don't see that model working when we're used to getting everything for free. Well, I, again, I think um, the time has come to end this uh, everything for free. And I, I think we should do it on purpose. Um, because it's led to a disaster. I think what's so sad is, you know, since any of us have been alive, TV has always been for free based on advertisers. And that model doesn't work because advertisers are now scared to death by the, you know, the Twitter world, et cetera. And it doesn't look like that model can be saved in any way, does it? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know who... I'm not sure who like responds to advertisements. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, it's well, somebody must since they're still paying for them. I agree. No, with no, it could be a mass delusion for 50 years. I mean, there there are worse mass delusions that advertising. Now, there's some advertisements I do pay attention to, but none of them on television. I mean, the only thing on television, I guess, is when they show a trailer for a movie that I might be interested in. Oh, look at that! Oh, that's that's kind of cool. But I mean, the idea that I'm going to go out and buy a Budweiser or a Dodge Ram truck is is watching a football game. That's ridiculous, and I don't see anybody who does that now. Of course, they've got all these studies and whatnot. They're the same people probably made the studies on modern monetary theory, how the government can spend <laughs> tons of money and not do anything. But I, I don't think there is. I, I don't think advertise. I, I think you know who has decent advertisements. I, I think. Instagram, that's a Facebook company, has, has really great targeted advertisements. You know, I like cats, I like gadgets, so they send me cats and gadgets. And, you know, I, I have uh, responded occasionally to those. Um, and uh, But can a place like Substack, with not such liberal people on it, survive by using targeted advertising? My view is this. I, I think that it, since if Substack really wanted to be uh, smart, really wanted to be smart, it would allow subscribers to forward an occasional article once in a while. Just write that into the terms of service. Like I, I paid for this article and you know you get to forward it to like two friends and put that in the terms of service. So that uh so that, I mean of course everybody can forward anything. It's an email you can forward it to anybody, but at least putting it in terms of service gives it a little bit more, you know, moral heft that that we are going to try and spread some of this uh, goodness around. If I were Substack, I would do that, but you know, that's, that's not what it is. You want them to allow them, you allow people to give it away for free. I thought you were just saying you were opposed to the free stuff. No, no, no. I said subscribers like myself uh -huh. can email an article to two friends, you know, once a month or whatever. So if I come across something really, really good, by Alex Berenson, who I subscribe to, or Steve Kirsch, who I subscribe to, 
or um, a couple other guys, I can send it to you. Send it to you and Steve or you and Jody or something. Hey, read this. And then you look at it and you say, yeah, that's really worthwhile. Subscribe that's to that guy. Kind of or you copy and paste the whole thing and send it without their awareness. <laughs> of course you can steal stuff. Everybody can steal stuff. I, I'm not saying, I'm or just saying that from- you read it in a Zoom meeting, and record it and send off the recorded reading. Yeah. Oh, I corrected for most of history, or at least for hundreds and hundreds of years, all knowledge was very centralized amongst the elite. And now we live in an era where we've gotten where all knowledge is available to everybody for free. And this is almost taking us backwards. I don't know where you guys are getting this free, man. I pay a lot of money for my Xfinity. I pay for my Wi-Fi. I mean, there ain't nothing free happening here. I pay for... This well, for instance, I mean, we, we, all, we all use Wikipedia for once in a while, and Wikipedia is the free encyclopedia that anybody can edit. And for a while, that sort of made sense. And for certain topics, um, it still makes sense. But, you know, there's hardly any topic in the world that doesn't have some sort of controversy associated with it. And there's hardly any topic that's immune to wokeness. So it's it's one of those things where I think Wikipedia is now is is hit the the curve where it's it's use, utility is going down very very rapidly as the um as the commies have decided to you know invade every if, if math can be racist and physics can be racist and you know biology obviously is racist well infrastructure they, is racist jk rowling um so yeah harry potter is now racist right and so you can't you you innocuous things that you can think you'd have an article on Wikipedia on, um, somebody somewhere will wokeify it. And uh, so again, the value of free is going away. The, the actual value, I mean, you, you can read Wikipedia and you can, but you have to look at it very, very critically. Um, whereas before you could think, yeah, okay, that's what happened in 1934, you know? But um, now you can't trust anything these guys put out. And I think the value of free is going away because they couldn't leave it alone. The left had to destroy it. And I, I say we push it over the edge. I say we get rid yeah, of it. Yeah, but then, then you're going to have even more of a um, which brave new world where most people are not going to pay for it and there'll be even less knowledge than there is today. That's what I think. You know, I don't know what to tell you. We'll go back to the blogs. What's that? To, we'll go back to blogs. That's what well, you know. What is. there's that saying. It's it's a saying. I don't know, but it's harder to inform the misinformed than it is to inform the yeah. uninformed. So maybe it's not a bad thing because really people are largely misinformed, and sometimes that's me. But I'm one of the least smart enough to say, "Huh, is that really true?" and figure it out. A lot of people just accept the misinformation and never question it. So maybe that's not a bad thing if we have a whole bunch of uninformed people instead of a bunch of misinformed people. I don't have to say they're both misinformed and uninformed. To the extent that they're informed at all, they're misinformed, most people. I mean, I, you know, I talk to people all the time and I, I patiently explain that, um, you know, the virus is transmitted by aerosols and surgical masks or cloth masks don't stop aerosols. Um, and, and, you know, doesn't matter. I mean, it, it just, it, it does, they're impervious. It's a religion. It's a cult. 
it, they're mm-hmm. impervious to explanation. Yeah. So I just don't, I, I don't. We are heretics. Yeah. I mean, that's basically it. I mean, and it's not just the COVID thing or the inflation, the modern monetary theory thing, or, you know, the, um, what else is, is crazy that, you know, the critical race theory. Oh no, critical race theory just means we don't want to discriminate against poor black people. I was like, no, it doesn't. That's not it at all. I mean, there's this whole intellectual um, history of that coming from Karl Marx through the Frankfurt School to the, you know, to the present, uh, the critical theory to the present. And it's just, nobody cares. Nobody cares. It's not interesting. All right. What topics have we not gotten to that somebody absolutely wanted to get to? Um, DeSantis passed the stop or is proposing or passed, I didn't quite get whether it was the Stop Woke Act, which will give individuals the right to sue, which is the right way to go about it, by the way. The individuals, the right to sue, school districts who teach that, you know, one race of people is particularly bad or one race of people is particularly good or one race of people is particularly victimized, et cetera. And uh, I, I, I like the private right to sue idea. I think he's all over it and uh, good for him. Let's see how it works out in the you know, postmodern court system. Well, he's also come out with his thing about immigration. Um, oh yeah, send all the illegals to Delaware. Absolutely, 100% agree. Well, Delaware, Martha's Vineyard, Washington DC, which is yeah. you know, close to Northern, Northern Virginia. Virginia. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't care how much money it costs. I think they should do that. I think I think absolutely they should do it. They should say, well, you know, you can stay here uh, or we'll give you $1,000 on a first-class ticket to Washington, D.C. Perfect. Israel did that. You know, Israel had its um, immigration problem, I think, from Sudan and maybe a couple other places, and they destroyed a big part of Tel Aviv, and I think they were doing that for a while. Of course, it made a very big stink but they were paying people money that for them was not a lot, but going back to their countries of origin would have been a fortune. Yeah. It'd be very, very tempting. Ed, you bring up the, the private right of action. And, you know, when we're talking about things that came up this week, I, I have to bring up the, the abortion case from Texas. Um, I had a thought about that and just also a thought about the abortion case in Mississippi that is just pending. There was no real news this week, but, um, you know, the Texas case, the the Supreme Court declined to put an injunction in place um, pending resolution of the suit. They sent it back to the lower courts to get a decision. Um, as I think I predicted on this show, I know I predicted it privately to you guys. I said, uh, if that law is upheld, blue states like California and New York are going to give private rights of action to bounty hunters to sue gun manufacturers, gun sellers, uh, Trump supporters, people who utter Trump supportive of insurrection, all sorts of things like that. And uh, Gavin Newsom came out and, and said just that, that he was going to go after gun, gun manufacturers the same way. Um, but I, I think, I don't think that even the, the conservative justices on the court that want to overturn Roe, uh, I think that they see the, the issue of, 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 of broadening the concept of standing to allow a total unrelated party to sue uh, somebody who, who commits an abortion uh, or who aids and abets an abortion beyond the 15-week limit that the Texas law puts in. Um, 
But I do think that, so I don't think the Texas law is going to stand ultimately. Um, I think that they've sent it back in part because by the time it gets back up to the Supreme Court, they're going to reverse Roe on the Mississippi case. And the the interesting thing about the Mississippi case, I think I, I, I've been, you know, I've been giving it some thought. And I think that the ironic thing is the overwhelming majority of abortions occur within the first 15 to 20 weeks. Um, and the Mississippi law, I forget if the Mississippi law is, is 15 weeks. I think oh, it's, no, uh, it's odd is- because it's 15 weeks and then it has something in it that says, uh, this is from memory, but it's like, but, uh, but if you like 15, we'd really like to do six. I, no, I no, think, I, I was just, gonna, I think that the Texas law is actually six. No, no, the Mississippi Texas law, law has is a heartbeat this, law, right? The, yeah, the Texas law is a heartbeat law, but the Mississippi law has something in it that says, yeah, yeah we're going to do. That's only if Roe v. Wade were overturned is some kind of thing. That yeah, it. or something. There's something okay. in it. That's Here's odd. what I was thinking about, though. I was thinking that I think the court's going to overturn Roe and the reaction is going to be that there'll be about 15 states that respond to, to Roe being overturned by making abortion on demand available literally up to the point of birth. And it's basically going to be even people that are in states that ban abortion, it's just going to be a plane ticket away as long as your vaccine passport is okay. You're going to be a plane ticket away from abortion on demand around the country. And um, I think it's the right I think it's the right policy because I think Roe was a, a bad decision. I think it should be a state level issue. Uh, but I think the end result that's going to play out in practice, I don't think that the uh, pro-life anti-abortion side of the uh, movement uh, really understands that it's going to lead to, if anything, probably more abortions, not less. No, I don't think so. I've, I've, you know, anyway, I disagree. First of all, on the private right of action, I, I agree that Gavin Newsom can abuse the private right of action. He, he promised to do that. Um, but there isn't anything in California. I mean, there's no gun rights in California, so it, what does it matter? So he, so he does it. Um, the, do you really care if he does? I, I asked that legitimately. Again, do I, um, do I care. I, I'm I clou- I'm but clou- it's not just pit- guns. He can, he can, you know, he can allow people to sue for ten thousand dollars. I know, but Ed, somebody order a supportive insurrection. All I know, I know is but I, Ed, that don't you want the voters of California to get what the voters of California vote for? Absolutely. And the consequences I, of it. I want to cloward pivot the whole system, right? I mean, again, that this whole thing has gotten completely out of control. And with the COVID, with the, um, you know, the lockdown, we we have to, we have to just, if, if private right of action can destroy um, the confidence that people have in this regime, then I think that's what we ought to do. Um, And I know that, there are going to be people who are hurt um, by that. And, you know, I may be one of them uh, in the short term, but it doesn't matter because the regime is illegitimate and we have to, un- we have to get people to understand that. And I think um, Newsom doing this uh, in response to the Texas law, of course, the Texas law is a bad law. Of course, it's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional for loads of reasons other than abortion. doesn't matter. It's the first successful thing the right has done in 50 years to push back on the left. And for that, we've got to support it at least for the time being. 
And yes, it opens a, uh, a can of worms, but I mean, the can of worms has been open on the other side for, for literally decades. So I'm not as worried about it as you are. In fact, I'm kind of glad about it. Okay, folks, can we wrap it up? Go on once, go on twice. Great. As so, always, please. Let me just uh, let me say one thing before you wrap up, Steve. I mean, I think we hit on all the substantive stories I, I wanted to talk about, but uh, Mike has been a, a regular participant in our show and he's still unable to participate. I don't want another show to go by without reaching out to him and letting him know that we're thinking about him and we're hoping he recovers and that he's able to join us again really soon. And that, you know, you know, we gave him a shout out last week and I believe Amen. on the men. Is that what you're hearing? I am aware of that. I, my understanding is he's very much on the, on the mend. I was hoping he would join us today, but uh, given that he didn't, I hope he listens and I want him to know that we we're thinking about him and we remembered him and 100%. Uh, and we want him, we want him back. 100%. I agree. Thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely. Okay, with that, folks, have a wonderful evening. We'll be up as a podcast very shortly. See you all next Wednesday, 4 p.m., and have a great day. Thank you. Bye, everybody.